It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone, today's guest is Patrick Foster, a former professional cricketer who has just released a compelling new book, Might Bite, The Secret Life of a Gambling Addict. Thank you for joining me on the show, Patrick. Thanks for having me, it's great to speak to you. Well, as the book uh, cover says, the unputdownable, I don't know whether that's a word, story of of a life shattered by a secret gambling addiction and an uplifting tale of recovery. Uh, I'd certainly recommend the book, and uh, we were speaking off air. It's almost like a Jeffrey Archer type uh, thriller, but we're dealing with uh, fact here, not not fiction. And I'd like to begin, as the book Mike Bite does, on the twenty third of March two thousand and eighteen, and you are now at Slough Railway Station, where you are about to take your own life, and you send two texts to your then-girlfriend, Charlotte, and your brother, what did the texts te- te- say? Yeah, that's right. Um, I'd come to a point where I didn't feel like I could go on. Um, my life had kind of become so unmanageable. I didn't see a way out. Um, and weirdly, for the first time, I decided that it was important to, to tell somebody or, or people and I hadn't known who to tell. I hadn't been able to tell anybody. So those two texts, one was yeah to my then girlfriend, now wife, Charlotte. Um, and that text actually just said, I'm sorry. Um, and the other text was to my brother, which was a bit more kind of descriptive, if you like, and explained that I was in the situation that I was in. I was about to do what I was about to do. I saw no way out and that I just wanted him to remind the family that I was sorry and, and I loved them. Um, and I thought that was going to be it. I thought that was going to be the last communication I had. But fortunately, as um, people now know, um, and, and as you'll find out if you read the book, um, my brother responded to me. Um, and yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Obviously, what your brother said to you, did he actually ring you back? He tried ringing me. Um, 
I didn't want to speak to him. I didn't want him to hear me in the state that I was in. I didn't want that to be his kind of last memory of me. Uh, so I decided not to pick up the calls. And then he eventually sent me a message, which was obviously the thing that saved me. But um, he did try um, and ring me. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't pick up. But obviously what he said back in a text made made a, well, made a massive difference. You're, you're here now. Yeah, he. I think the big thing for me then was he, he, the way he responded was very different to what I thought he was going to say or how he was going to be. But also, I think just the relief of getting it off my chest was significant. But probably the most, I always say the most telling part was I don't think my brother ever realized exactly where I was, the, the kind of gravity of the situation. Because I think if he had, he may have panicked. Um, I think he thought I was probably thinking about doing that and not that I was actually there and, and it was a kind of very immediate situation. Um, and what he said was, look, he said, unless you've sort of murdered somebody, he said, nothing can be this bad. He said, please just tell me what it is. Talk to me and I promise I'll, I'll try and help. And I think the big thing for me was it finally made me think about other people, not just myself. My addiction had made me very selfish. I'd only really thought about the impact of it on me for a long time, not other people. Um, and it was actually them that stopped me from doing it because I didn't want to put them through what they would have inevitably gone through if I wasn't still here. So it obviously made you think because it's the thought that the people left behind would sort of never get over what what you might have done yeah exactly that i think it's suicide mental health addiction they're obviously very complex topics there's lots of layers in these things one of the things that i find quite difficult when people talk about it is when they talk about it being a very selfish act it is in many ways, and I can see why people say that. But actually, if you're ever in that situation, whilst it's never, ever the solution, you actually feel like you're being selfless because you think the world will be a better place without you, that people will be better off without you. So you feel what's what you're about to do is actually right for you and, and other people, not the opposite. But yet it appears that way to other people. Um, and I think sometimes if people do or can just remove the impulsivity and, and think about the, the kind of devastation it leaves behind, it, it's, it, well, it certainly helped me. Well, thank, thanks for, for answering those questions. I know it must be difficult. But in this podcast, I'd like to talk to you about your gambling, how you funded it and how you've even mentioned already how it changed your behaviors and uh, thankfully also talk about uh, your recovery and what you're now doing to help others suffering suffering with gambling addiction but to start with because we're on a cricket podcast growing up you must have always dreamed of being a successful professional cricketer and you were taken on by North Hans at their academy at 15 you played first class cricket for Durham University you played many games for uh, Northamptonshire um, that must have been your ambition when you were younger yeah absolutely like so many young men I had one dream in life one ambition and that was to play professional 
sport. I didn't actually care what sport it was in. I just loved sport, loved team sports. I played all of them and was very fortunate in my education because I got the opportunity to to do that. It emerged that cricket was probably the one that I had the most ability in. And when I was 15, I was given the opportunity to kind of pursue my dream and given a place on the Northlands Academy. As you said, I went up through the academy, combining my studies with preparing for a life in professional sport. I played second team cricket. Um, and then when I left school, I, I signed a professional contract and my dream came true. And And I always describe myself now as a, as a kind of failed professional cricketer. And people remind me that I wasn't because I actually was a professional cricketer. I played first class cricket. I achieved a lot more than a lot of people. So obviously I look back now with some pride that I was able to get there, but I wish I'd gone on to have more of a career and, and maybe spent the rest of my life um, doing it, not what I ended up doing. Well, looking through your your stats, I mean, as a seam bowler, you got 24 first-class wickets, but you did dismiss, you know, Faf Duplessis, former South African captain, Mark Stoneman, England opening batsman, Samit Patel, England all-rounder. Uh, I say you, you, you got some decent decent players out in your in your short uh, first class career yeah I've got I've certainly got a few scalps that I'm I'm proud of I think it always helped the first class games that I played at uni uh they were always in April and those conditions certainly uh suited me as a kind of old-fashioned English seamer so uh there was a bit in the wicket I bowled at a few of those guys subsequently in uh, in August and, and September and, and the balls disappeared to all parts. So uh, they've certainly got their own back. But yeah, a few wickets, a few names that I, I'm proud of there. And you even played reading the book against uh, Virat Kohli as well. Yeah, that's right. In in 2005, I was called up to the England under-19 set up on the back of some good performances in, in second team cricket. And uh India under-19s were touring and the kind of full under-19 side had already been selected. But one of the warm-up games was, was against what they call the Development of Excellence eleven, which was guys that were kind of on the periphery of, of that setup. And yeah, Virat Kohli was, uh, was playing. And at the time, obviously, we all knew he was a good player because I think he got 70-odd and made it look very easy. But um no one knew he'd be quite as good as, as what he's gone on to, to do. Um, and it seems strange to say that I bowled at him. But, um, yeah, I think if, if I'd bowled at him for the rest of his career, his, his stats would be even more frightening. And your cricket career at North Hants ended at 20. How did you feel when your contract wasn't renewed? I think it's that was a huge moment in my life. Um, not just because of what went on to happen after it, but I think when you've got a dream like that and you have a taste of it, it's like nothing else when it gets taken away um, because it was all I'd ever wanted. And, and as I say, almost having a little taste of it made it worse when it was it was taken away. I I don't really look back and begrudge the club or the fact that I, I didn't go on to achieve what I hoped because in my heart of hearts, I probably knew that in some ways I, I wasn't good enough. Maybe I hadn't been given as many opportunities as I might do in in the modern game, but it was really tough and it hit me really hard. 
But I think what was very difficult for me, and, and I think what a lot of people don't realize is, is when you're in that situation, the expectations you put on yourself are so high, you find it tough. But also you feel like you've let other people down, people that have invested time and money in your career and things. And that's what I found really tough. But I almost didn't want to let that on. I didn't want people to be aware of that. And so I pretended I didn't really care. And of course, deep down, I really did. Um, and as I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, that, that certainly was the catalyst for some of the problems that then ensued. Yeah, reading your book, um, this sort of attitude of hiding behaviours is is sort of what was going on when you were when you were gambling. But I wanted to just, having read the book, so listeners can understand uh, I want to talk about your gambling now, but three or four things that stood out to me um, about the things you were doing when you were gambling. Like, uh, for instance, you would go to the cash point and withdraw money at eleven fifty nine, and then, then at twelve oh one, you know, past midnight, you'd do, do another withdrawal. You were gambling your paycheck in, in one day. Uh, you lost money from your parents, I think, in a very short period of time. And um, you were betting on your laptop when you were working, uh, teaching at school. Um, This is quite scary stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, as I try and articulate in the book, gambling for me, like it did for a lot of people, started as a bit of fun with my mates on things that I was interested in. And it was fun. It was entertaining. I was in control of it in terms of the fact that I had the time and the money to, to probably do it but that changed quickly and, and what gambling became was never what I thought it could ever be it started to serve a very different purpose in my life when I became sort of fully addicted to it but as you say the, the places that it took me to the fact that I became lost all value for, for money it didn't become about winning and losing which is what it should be it just became about being in the bet as I always say and and that feeling of the unknown and of course people say to me now well what were you doing why didn't you just stop Um, if I could have I would have done I I just lost the ability to make any sort of rational decisions connected to my gambling and um, it is for some people quite frightening what it does to you and when it takes hold of you how much your addiction consumes you and, and totally monopolizes your life. And I read that in October 2006, you, you said these were the 12 seconds that changed your life forever. Yeah, that's right. Um, my first bet, unlike a lot of young people nowadays, my first bet was in uh, a betting shop uh, on a Bob T machine and on a fixed odds betting terminal playing roulette. I'd never done it before. I put my two pounds in the machine. Me being me, I put it all on two, uh, green zero because it was the only number that was different from all the others. It was the last number to come up. And I thought, what the chance of it coming up twice in a row? And 12 seconds later, it came in. And I always say my life changed forever. But almost the strangest thing about my addiction is I can't explain that feeling it gave me because I'd never had it before and I'd never have it again. And one of the weirdest things is I think with my addiction, I spent the next 12 and a half years trying to chase the feeling I got from my first bet, my my first win, and, and it never happened again. And, and it doesn't happen again for a lot of people. 
And do you think it, because you were a competitive sportsman, that was part of the reason why you were gambling so much? Without doubt. Um, I think, again, I'm very quick to caveat and say this isn't the case for everybody, but for certain people like myself, I'm incredibly competitive. I think it's what made me very good at what I used to do, very high achieving. Um, but it made me very bad when I was gambling because gambling was almost like a drug for someone who was so competitive like me because it was all about winning and losing. It gave me that feeling on tap and, and I simply would not stop when I lost. And, and then when I won, I loved that feeling so much that I would just want to replicate it over and over again. So my competitive nature definitely played a huge part. And of course, the work that I do now uh, in professional sport we see that that is often a common denominator and it's no secret there's so many high-profile sports men and, and indeed women that, that have these problems for exactly that reason. But you weren't always losing because you, you were winning large sums, weren't you? you at one point you won 35000 on some Champions League bets and you lost that money in six weeks. Yeah, the, the big win, I always say, is probably the, was the turning point with my gambling and I think what some people don't realize which I think is really important that they do is when you're gambling when you win is actually when you're most vulnerable because at that point you kind of think you're invincible that it will happen all the time but not just that it's that whole kind of concept of well now if I win less than that it's not quite the same so I want to win it all the time and and that's what happened to me and and the big win was was huge I lost it very quickly and then I tried to win it back and that's what started this kind of vicious spiral. But as you just alluded to there, I think one of the things that people forget is I didn't just lose all the time because I probably would have got found out or stopped a lot earlier than I did. I, I did win, but I think the difference for a gambling addict is no amount of money is ever enough. So when I used to win a certain amount of money, even if it was a huge sum of money that could potentially clear debts or make a big difference to my life, it was, well, I could just win a bit more and then do this, that or the other. And you're always trying to win a little bit extra so you've got more money to gamble with. Um, and I realize now that no amount of money would ever have been enough for me whilst I was gambling. Um, but yet you almost try and justify it by thinking it, it was. Um, and every time I won, my kind of method was I just reinvest what I won. Um, so there's there's plenty of people that I know that might put a £20 stake on a horse. And if it wins, they put another £20 bet on the next race they want to have a bet on. And then they save the rest. But me, it was, well, if I won £100, £200, £500, then my next bet would be whatever that was. And how were you, you funding it? There were so many different ways of doing it, but just let listeners know all the, the various outlets you had to fund this gambling addiction. Yeah, initially it was easier um, because I could access sort of mainstream loans, whether that was through my bank, using my overdraft, um, credit cards. I mean, still things that you shouldn't be doing, but w were things that I could access sort of easily without sort of having to go to too much trouble. 
Um, then once those had run out, I turned to payday loans, unsecured loans, loan sharks. Um, of course, they are incredibly dangerous because of the interest rates that they charge you, which are extraordinary. And, and I just wouldn't make the repayments and those would just build up and up and even forget about some of them. Then once those had gone, I sort of started to turn to, to individuals. Um, I didn't really want to turn too much or as much as I, or as little as I could, should I say, to kind of people around me close to me, because I think they would have then started to question it. So I started to turn to individuals who I was kind of loosely connected with. And then once that didn't work, I then started to borrow money off parents of pupils that I taught. Um, for money I, I abused my position as a teacher because I wasn't stupid I recognized that lots of these people were wealthy they would have access to money these people liked respected me were worried about me they lent me the money they could so I promised to pay them back and I didn't I gambled it all away and of course that's not something that I'm remotely proud of um, and it was out of pure desperation but as soon as I found out that this was kind of a, a funding stream there was quite a big pool um, and that in a weird way almost became an addiction in itself um, because it was a similar kind of thing. The outcome, will I, will they lend me money? Will I not? It was, it was almost like a gamble in itself. Um, and, and then eventually when that ran out, um, that, that was it. And that's the point where I got found out. Um, unfortunately, there are people, people I work with, people I know who, who probably wouldn't have been able to access the funds that I could through individuals. And, and they, of course, turned to, to crime or, or fraud, well, fraud or, or other crimes. And um, I think that's the, the reality of a, a gambling addiction is there's nothing stopping you apart from money. And, and there is always a way to find money. Um, and, and also, I always say the other thing is that the irony of a gambling addiction is you always think the only thing that can get you out of it is the thing that's caused the problem in the first place. No alcoholic has ever tried to drink themselves sober. But as a gambling addict, you think you can financially get yourself out of the problem. And of course, I now realize that was never going to happen, although I, I did try my best. Yeah, because you had worked in the city and then you moved into teaching. So you weren't earning vast amounts of money. and is it right that the your total sort of gambling amount was about four million, of which two million was online? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I didn't have four million pounds to to lose, and, and that's why sometimes the figures are a little bit misleading. But in terms of transactions, that's kind of what went in and out because over a thirteen-year period, where you're gambling all day, every day, there's huge sums of money we're talking about here, and I'd win, I'd lose, I'd borrow. Uh, so yeah, it was eventually that amount. Um, the stuff online is, is kind of traceable for obvious reasons. What I did before that in betting shops, casinos around the country and around the world is, is not un is unaccounted for. Um, but yeah, frightening sums of money. Um, I probably worked out that over that time, I probably lost over a million pounds that, that wasn't mine. But obviously, I paid some of that back when I won during that time when I needed to and, and ended up with about a quarter of a million pounds worth of debt um, when I eventually stopped, which is still 
um, obviously a hugely significant sum of money. And you've mentioned it a few times, but your behaviour as a result of the addiction must have changed. I know I've read the book and you're talking about you're lying to people, you've cheated people, you were hiding from the truth. You Physically, you had a, a stomach ulcer. Um, you, I'm not saying you were an alcoholic, but you obviously were drinking too much and you put, as a professional sportsman, you were putting weight on. All these things were happening at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've you've hit the nail on the head there um, in the sense that people do describe this as a kind of invisible and hidden addiction. And it is much harder to spot signs in people, but actually there are signs, um, some of which you've just talked about. But I think actually one of the, the biggest things when it comes to gambling and I'm not anti-gambling. I recognize that there's lots of people that can do it and, and not have a problem with it. But if you've got a gambling addiction everybody just thinks about the money but actually it's not just about the money it's about the impact that it has on mental health time sleep and actually during my addiction I became everything that I can't stand I lost my values morals principles and that's the bit that hurts the most the relationships things that I did to other people of course the money's terrible and and I'm kind of dealing with the consequences now, not just for me, but for other people. But actually, it's those bits that are the, are the worst parts. But as soon as anyone says gambling, they just think of money. Um, and this is one of the messages we try and get across through the work that I do now is, is it might be that you're incredibly wealthy and you've got lots of money, but affordability comes in, in different forms and guises, I believe. And it came all came to a head at the time of the nearly four years ago now at the time of the Cheltenham Festival of 2018, um, with Mike Bite as as the book's called, uh, running in the in the Cheltenham Gold Cup. Uh, can you just briefly let us know what happened that day at school? You're watching this race on your laptop while you're teaching, and and just on that subject, you were still able to. Um, be highly regarded as a as a teacher at, at a private school at you know, both private schools you worked at yeah i think that's one of the scariest things about it is all this was going on and people didn't realize because i was still able to do my job um because i became so good at hiding it but also i was so good at prioritizing making sure that I wouldn't get found out that no cracks would appear, would appear. But actually, that was exhausting and it wasn't sustainable. And I, I still maintain that if I didn't get found out when I did, it, it, it wasn't far around the corner. Um, and that's exactly what led me um, to the situation that you've just described. March is always a strange month for me um, now because it, it's my birthday. Um, it's the anniversary of the last time I had a bet. Um, but almost the weirdest part is that it's the, the month of the Cheltenham Festival, which used to be the biggest week of my year, uh, my favourite week of the year in some ways, but actually it was the worst week of my life um, in 2018 when I'd been found out, cracks had started to appear, the school had received some complaints and, and started to do some investigation, rightly so, and, and they found out my biggest secret. I got informed of this. And I knew ultimately 
I wasn't told there and then, but I knew ultimately because of what had been going on, everything that I've just told you and, and that you'll read in the book, hopefully, that I was going to lose my house, my job. I was potentially facing criminal conviction and I panicked. I was desperate and I thought to myself, right, this has now become a matter of life and death. If I can win the money back, at least that might stop me going to prison or being charged with anything I can pay everybody back and yes I might lose my house and my job but ultimately my life goes on and and if it if I can't do that then I see no way out and it was coincidentally almost to the day that the start of the Cheltenham Festival and I saw this as my opportunity um I borrowed some money off somebody I told them I'd pay them back very quickly because I was convinced I could turn what was £10,000 into half a million. And, and during the festival in 2018, I, I tried. I gambled all day, every day. I won, I lost. It was an emotional roller coaster. Uh, uh, then on the kind of Thursday, time was running out as I saw it. And I started to put more kind of outlandish bets on. And, uh, and one came in, um, probably something that will never happen again. My money became a large sum of money. A life-changing sum of money but to me it was completely worthless at that point because it needed to be 10 times that amount otherwise I, I was going to face what, what I've just explained and out of desperation I did the most stupid thing you could possibly imagine but weirdly I can justify it by saying that at that moment in my life it felt like the right thing to do it felt like my only option I decided to put it all on one horse on one horse race Cheltenham Gold Cup in 2018 on a horse called Mike Bite, who I'd followed for some time. Racing fans know that was quite an unpredictable sort of character, uh, which almost fits with the story weirdly. Um, but yeah, I put it all on, on Mike Bite, and it was for most people a, an incredible race. Um, for me, anything but. And my bite lost by a few lengths and my world came crashing down. And as I say, I, I just saw no way out at that point. I was watching it in a, in a history lesson. I had a class full of boys sat there doing their work and I just pretended nothing had happened. I went over to the window of the classroom and I stared out of it for about 25 minutes and just considered what to do next. And time stood still for a while. And, um, to cut a long story short, as as you'll find out if you read the book, I did various things. Um, fortunately, none of them worked and, and then ended up where I was at Slough Station and reached out to my, my brother who, yeah, stopped me doing what I was, I was about to do and uh, the rest is history. Thank you for, for that uh, summary there. And it might even be the case that obviously your brother save you but actually might by not winning was probably a better thing for you than if it had won the race without doubt um i always say now it's the best thing that ever happened to me it didn't feel like it at the time but i know now i, I had the right intentions but if it had won who knows where i'd be now but i'd certainly still be gambling if i was was able to or probably in prison or dead which is which is sinister but as i said earlier in in our chat no amount of money was ever enough and i would have carried on doing it i'm convinced um so yeah it was probably the best thing that that ever happened to me 
And briefly, what's happened since? I know you're working with the PCA as well, aren't you now? Yeah, that's right. So I I went through rehab. I went through a pretty significant um, treatment process. Um, was very fortunate um, in that I went to a private treatment facility on Harley Street in London. Spent several weeks there, having a long, hard look at myself in the mirror, accepting what had happened, taking ownership of it, but also understanding my addiction and what was driving it. Um, I had sort of aftercare therapy, counselling, attended Gamblers Anonymous, did all the things that, that I needed to do and continue to do in my and for my recovery. But I also had a burning desire to, to share my story with people um, and use it in some way to hopefully turn a, a kind of negative into a positive. The PCA as an organization and, and the Professional Cricketers Trust had, had been amazing throughout this process, the support they'd given me. And I really wanted to give something back in that area as well, because I realized that when I was a young athlete, I didn't receive any education on this. I didn't know what the dangers and pitfalls of it were why you're potentially more vulnerable. And, and I found an organization called Epic Risk Management, who I work for now, who were already working with the PCA. So that gave me the platform to, to work in professional cricket, which I wanted to, but also in education, which obviously I've got a background in and, and work with young people now. So I use my story and my experience to, to educate people about what the potential consequences can be if you've got a problem how to spot signs in themselves, other people, what to do if you've got a problem uh, and allow people to kind of make a more informed choice, but also hopefully just break down some of these, the barriers attached to some of the taboo subjects that we all know are in existence. Um, and, and that was one of the ambitions for the book too. So the work through that I do through Epic across education and professional sport is rewarding for me. It's good for me and, and hopefully it's it's good for other people and being able to kind of hopefully prevent and educate people through what I've been through is important and I think works. And you must feel you're putting something back because I know that the PCA have helped, were helping you even during your sort of gambling as well. Yeah, it's nice to give something back, having taken a lot away. Um, the support that they provide me is is kind of ongoing. It's it's not as um, kind of heavy as it, as it was because it doesn't need to be so much, but it's always there. And to give something back to to those organisations is phenomenal because what they what they do for past present players is is amazing. Um, and I think one of the things as an organization that, that I find extraordinary about it is the way they looked after me was the same way that they would treat somebody who's playing for England now and, and has played 100 tests. And I played nine first class games for Durham Uni, but the support was still there. And without it, I don't know where I'd be. Um, and actually, as I sit here now, later today, I'm going to the um, PCA rookie camp, which is for all the newly signed players. Um, and I'll be talking to them uh, about my experiences so that hopefully they can they can learn from those as they start their very exciting journeys um, into that world. Well, I'm sure they'll, they'll gain a lot from 
your personal experiences. Uh, on the subject of gambling, uh, what do you do you think of that nowadays? Um, there's so many, you know, people that get free bets, and it's glamorized so much on the television. What's your thoughts on, on gambling today? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. It's hard for people to believe, but I'm not anti-gambling because I'm not stupid. I recognise that a large number of people do it and don't have a problem with it. Just like there's a lot of people that drink alcohol and aren't alcoholics. Um, so I use the analogy, if, if I had any other different opinion, it would be like being an alcoholic and trying to shut down every pub. It's it's That's not my intention. My intention is to help people understand that it can become a problem, how it does, what you can do to protect yourself. But I think the big thing with where we're at at the moment with land, the landscape is I don't think there's enough of a balance. Um, I personally think a lot more needs to be done to make gambling both safer and fairer in terms of the kind of regulation, uh, social responsibility. I believe that the individual needs to take some responsibility as well, but also there's there's some responsibility from the regulatory side of things, the industry itself. When it comes to things like advertising and sponsorship, a lot is made of it. And I think rightly so, because again, I think there's just an imbalance at the moment. There's too much of it. I don't think there's anyone in the world that doesn't think there's too many gambling adverts. It's, it's everywhere you look. And, and again, I know that with that, for certain sports particularly, and, and racing would be one of those that what comes with that keeps those things alive and is really important but it's about getting that balance right and and some of the advertising being predatory in its nature with free bets count opening offers i just don't think it's necessary um but i think probably the biggest thing for me is i still find it very hard to understand how something can be so ingrained in culture and society now so normalized and yet still be a bit of a dirty word still be a bit of a taboo subject where people don't want to talk about it and yet they do it they lie about it Uh, and I think trying to break down those barriers and reduce that stigma I think is really important I would say one of the scariest things about my addiction is I think if I had a problem with drugs or alcohol I would have admitted it sooner but because it was gambling I didn't want to admit it because people would just think I'm an idiot and yet that's not the case and it's not right um and i want to see that change so there's more being done which is good and we're moving in a positive direction but there's a lot more that needs to be done the gambling act review is going on at the moment and that so it should be because current regulation is not fit for purpose because it was pre kind of online gambling as well so we'll hopefully see some positive changes but I don't think prohibition, banning it is is the option. I'd, I'd never say that, but I think um, making it safer and fairer is, is really important. What about all the people that have helped you? Uh, I'm thinking about Charlotte, your girlfriend, who's now, who was your girlfriend, who's, who you're now married to, uh, your parents, obviously your brother, uh, and your friends and family. Yeah, almost impossible to articulate kind of how grateful I am to them um what's really nice is I think 
the people that have read the book already and have, have kind of responded to me if that's something that's come out of it is that they've gained a lot of credit not that they needed any from my perspective but I think people have uh, have realized how incredible they've been and how they could have responded very differently and what a difference that's made to my recovery I will be forever indebted and grateful to those people and and so many others and and hopefully through the work that I do now and and just trying to be the best version of myself um I can undo some of the uh the kind of bad stuff that I did and I think other people have been a lot quicker to forgive me than I'll ever be to forgive myself um but each day it gets a little bit easier I share the benefit though of a strong close family albeit you were hiding things from them but you've always been a close family haven't you yeah absolutely I mean family is everything to me now and I think it does show that and and I've got even more respect and admiration for people that go through what I did come out the other side who who don't have the support of family and friends like I did um, because I don't know how I would have done it without them but I think family is is so important I think the one thing they always say is they just wish that I'd told them sooner of course um and if I'd known what their reaction would have been, the pure lack of judgment that there was, I think I would have done something sooner. Um, and I think that's one of the important things is that if we can try and remove that and allow people to be open, honest and transparent about not just their relationship with that, but their relationship with anything, um, less people will end up in the situation that, that I was. Well, I've got to end as we're on a cricket podcast. Uh- well, cricket and horse racing podcast, but ha- how's the cricket? Are you, are you looking forward to the new season? Hopefully you're going to be playing somewhere. Yeah, I am. Um, it's actually a, a, another part of the kind of story, which is lovely, is in 2016, as you'll read in the book, I left a club called Horsepath, um, which is in Oxfordshire, playing the Home Counties League. Uh, I left there in in circumstances I'm not very proud of. I owed people connected to the club money. And yeah, I, I, I left for completely the wrong reasons, but almost as a way of kind of protecting myself. When I stopped, I always had ambitions to, to go back there, but the time had to be right. Um, circumstances had to be right. And, and last year I went back and played for them again. Um, the standard is is good. I'm getting older and, and less good, but still managed to, to kind of perform at, at times and, and most in, most importantly, really enjoy it and play with a smile on my face and, and hopefully be a positive influence on people in and around the club. And, and this year I've taken on the captaincy. So uh, we've kind of gone full circle. Um, so am I excited? Yeah, I am. Am I slightly apprehensive? Um, a bit it helps being a bit fitter than I was a few years ago so yeah really looking forward to it and it's a um, it's a very special club it's it's one of those sort of village clubs that punches way above its weight in in terms of kind of league standing but has a real family feel and, and they've been all all been amazing to me so yeah it's um looking forward to it and uh yeah pre-season nets are, are just about to get underway um so bag will be coming out the, out the shed and, and we go again as they say oh, that's good you'll soon be getting those early season April May wickets won't you so 
yeah, I might try and enjoy the uh, enjoy the bowling for the first couple of months, and then and then see if I can whack a few towards the end. But um, that'd be nice to nice to be back out there. Although I don't relish the fielding element anymore. I used to love it. I used to want the ball to come to me all the time. Now I I hide and and don't want the ball to come anywhere near me. But um, no, it's uh, yeah, looking forward to the season. Well, thank you very much, uh, Patrick, for sharing your story on the Paddock and the Pavilion podcast. I, I, it's a harrowing, harrowing read, but I recommend the book uh, Might Bite the Secret Life of a Gambling Addict to anyone. It's by Bloomsbury Press. And yeah, I mean, we've mentioned quite a few things on the, about the book today, but uh, thank you very much for being so open and honest about uh, about your life over the last say 12 and a half years I think we're talking about and the very best of luck for the future and uh, hope you bag some wickets uh, when the seasons get started thanks so much for having me on and, and for listening and yeah hopefully people will will buy and enjoy the book if that's the right word um, but hopefully it will it will help people and give people a better understanding of of what is an, a really important issue and topic. So thanks very much for, for covering it on the pod. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pad. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network.